on this Easter Sunday. I want to make a, a quick note. I've, we've redone the children's page a couple times recently, but on page 10, uh, the latest and greatest uh, sermon notes for kids. Um, that's m- kids of all ages. You know, some, of, some other of you might use that. Uh, we are in Revelation. Last week on Palm Sunday, we looked at the beginning uh, section after the prologue, verses 4 through 8, and we're continuing this morning. We'll return to our Ecclesiastes series next week and finish that up in the coming weeks. But for this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 18. Oh, passages printed in the bulletin on page 6 and 7. It's in the Black Pew Bibles on page 1028. And last week I asked, what would you change if you could change anything in your life? And this morning I want to ask, what do you fear? And how does the resurrection alter your fears? So follow along as I read God's word again for us this morning. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Join me in prayer. Father, we rejoice in today as we've already prayed, but we do want to pray especially for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, as your servant, that where there is encouragement and edification and you are exalted, then, Lord, I pray those would be your words and they would remain with us. Lord, where there may be confusion or uncertainty, let those be my words and may they quickly pass. Father, we rejoice that you give us your word, that you've given us your son, that you fill us with your spirit. You've not left us alone. And so we come before you and we humbly ask that you would continue to speak into our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not scared of heights. I respect them. I'm not scared of snakes. I just haven't liked them since Genesis 3. I'm not scared of not having my phone 
I just don't like when it gets under 50%. You know what I mean? You start panicking. Is it going to die? Am I going to be left all alone without a phone in this world? Now, some of you think our, your children might have lachanophobia. That's the fear of vegetables. And I don't know how you feel about otters. I think they're pretty cute, but if you were afraid of them, that would be lutrophobia. And I won't even try to say the fear of long words because it's ironically a long word. That seems wrong. My greater fears are often psychological or relational, emotional or spiritual. I want to be liked. I don't want to be abandoned. And I don't want to be considered not worthy. And I don't mean in any large sense, but maybe just not worthy of the job I have or the family or the place or the things that someone would come along and say, what are you doing here? Those kinds of fears. Some of us are more ruled by fears than others. Some have learned to confront our fears. How many of us learn to eat our vegetables holding our noses? At least that's how I was taught. I don't know that that really did anything other than allowed me to not breathe and have to eat a vegetable. Some of us may put on a brave face for others, but inside we are quivering. We live in a world of fear. Some are very specific to our lives and some are general to the community in which we live or maybe in another part of the world. We can be ruled by general fears or circumstantial fears. We have fears that are rational and we have fears that are irrational. We live in a world of fear. And that was certainly true when the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation when he received this vision. It was a time of fear, especially for those who follow Jesus. It was a time of persecution. The Roman emperors didn't treat Christians kindly. Nero was famous in, in a, not a good way for the way he persecuted Christians. John's under the emperor Domitian at this time. And the question is, what does the resurrection have to say to John and to say to us about our fears? What is greater than those things that seemingly rule our hearts? Well, here's my theme. In his resurrection, Christ calms our fears. Now, please do not hear me say that our fears magically go away. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the more that I see Christ in his resurrection glory, the less I will be ruled by those fears. The more I look to my Lord, the more those fears will be settled because I know he loves me and has overcome the world. He is the greater king. He is the king that rules and transcends all lesser kings. So I want to talk about the island of tribulation, an unexpected reunion, and the living one. Have you ever wanted to own an island or just to live on an island? Sounds great. Have you watched Island Hunters? You know, they've got the $2 million budget, and they're not satisfied because the house that's on the island doesn't have enough bedrooms. It has 10, but they need 11. You know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like house hunters, but with islands. You've maybe seen that. 
Sometimes you just want to live on an island because you want to get away from it all. At least you perceive that you'd be able to get away from it all. Well, I assure you, John is not hunting for an island. He has been hunted and he's been caught. And he's been banished to the island of Patmos. Domitian was described as a ruthless but efficient autocrat. That's always a nice combination. Glad he's efficient in his ruthlessness. Patmos is a rocky, arid island. And why is he there? You hear at the end of verse 9. He's on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. He's proclaiming that the word of God is true. And because of that, someone in the Roman kingdom who says anybody other than the Caesar is Lord is in trouble. And yet Christians would say that. Christ is king. He is Lord. So John gets banished, exiled from his home in Ephesus from the people he loves and is loved by. We've all experienced feelings of isolation and loneliness. That's especially been true the last couple years. John is feeling that, certainly. Imagine the fears that might be produced as he's been banished to this island. Will I ever go home again? Will I die in this place? Will the people that are left behind, will they know that I love them, that I care for them? What does he say as he writes? He says, I'm your brother and partner. I'm your brother and partner in these things that we face. All that we might fear in the world, I'm with you. I'm with you in these things, in the tribulation. Derek Tibble writes, like his readers John knew what it was like to be under pressure. The word derived from the verb, the word that's used here derived from the verb to press, to squash, often used metaphorically to describe a variety of mental and emotional ordeals and is sometimes translated as agony, distress, tribulation, oppression, suffering. I think you're getting the idea. Tidball goes on to say John's Experience of exile no doubt included ostracism, slander, poverty, and even violence. It was not a happy time. Jesus gave a promise to his disciples on the night before he died. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You hear that? Take heart take heart you will face these things but i have overcome the world but not just tribulation he's a brother and partner in a kingdom we can be exiled or full of fear in this world but if you are united by to christ by faith then wherever we are you are still in the kingdom of god You can be in the hospital awaiting some news that you don't want to hear, and you are still in the kingdom. You can be in a cubicle that you feel stuck in, uncertain if you'll ever get out of it, and you are still in the kingdom. You can be realizing that you're more out of control in your life than you 
ever have thought before. And you are still in the kingdom of God. John is honest about his circumstances, but also his ongoing citizenship in a kingdom that transcends. You can be on the island of Patmos banished, and you are still in the kingdom of God. And so our fears can be calmed when Christ becomes our focus. But the world will seek to throw us into fear and faithlessness, and that will require patient endurance. No Christian is exempt from tribulation that Christ promised. But because he has also promised that he has overcome the world on our behalf, then we can patiently endure while we wait for his will to prevail in our hearts and in all the world. Our fears will require it. But Christ has prevailed and we await the fullness of that. That's the island of tribulation that we live on at times and live in. But there is no place that the Lord cannot reach us. And John shows us that. Now we've heard some trumpets this morning. Imagine if they were right behind you. Blowing. They might get your attention, wouldn't it? I think it would. Now the trumpets were probably a little bit different, but you get the idea. John hears a voice. And when is this taking place? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the Lord's day. That's why we call Sunday the Lord's day, because it belongs to him. He rules over it, certainly as with all days. But this day especially has been sanctified by Christ. And on this island, this unexpected reunion with the risen Jesus, ESV Study Bible says John was conscious of being surrounded by the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. Such strong influence of the Holy Spirit leads to prophetic visions. That's what happens here. He has this vision. He sees the risen Jesus. He's, he has given instructions for this book to write these letters, to give them to those churches that are named there in verse 11. And how do we know that this is the risen Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Jesus' most common self-designation for himself was to call himself the son of man. And that comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel receives a vision and encourages those he's writing to, to behold, to look. And there's this human yet divine figure before him on clouds and signifying authority with him. And that son of man receives what has been attributed to God. Jesus would say of himself, Again, the high priest asked him, this is from Mark 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus repeatedly referred to himself as the son of man. And he is both recognizable in his humanity and completely other in his divinity. And in this passage, 
there's all sorts of Old Testament references. We're going to, for our purposes this morning, stick with the big picture. But the one thing that I want to say is, as you heard me read this earlier, is this how you imagine Jesus when you're reading the Gospels? It's quite a different picture that is being presented here in Revelation. Because here is Christ in all of his resurrected glory. Just one example will suffice the end of verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You ever stared at the sun? Don't do it. Kids, don't go out and stare at the sun. Adults, don't go stare at the sun because what will happen? You'll damage your eyesight. You won't be able to see as well. I mean, and damage can occur in as little as a few seconds. But look how John describes Jesus. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John and a couple other of the disciples got a, a brief glimpse of this in the transfiguration. And now here it is in its full glory. Here is the risen Lord before John. Jesus, though, even in the Gospels, could be both encouraging and frightening at the same time. We get a picture that when Jesus calmed the storm in Luke 8, in verse 25, the disciples have a question on their minds. Who then is this? Who is this Jesus? He calms the storm. He rules over nature. And yet they were afraid of him because he was greater. That's what it says. And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and waters and they obey him? They previously had been afraid of the storm. That was their fear. Understandably, you probably would have been scared yourself. But now they're afraid of Jesus. This is the nature of a relationship with God. We can know, only know him as he has revealed himself to us and we learn to submit our lives to him. And John is now seeing Jesus in all of his glory, all of his authority, all of his power, and that is for his people. This matters to John, who's been oppressed by the authority of Rome. And it matters to other followers of Christ who experience real fear. It matters to the church that may be meeting underground this very day due to persecution, fear, of even their lives. So it's not just a nice thought. It's a needed vision for a world of fear. But if he's for us, then our fears are transformed. Do you know if Christ is for you and will calm your storms and your fears? Receive salvation through Jesus Christ by faith and he will calm those storms. Ask the Lord to rule and reign in your life now and forevermore. He will rescue you. I'm not saying everything will be easy, but it will be different, and I would guarantee you that. But how would you react if you saw this vision that John saw, heard what he heard, felt what he felt? How would you react? How would you respond? Well, John, it tells us that he 
fell at his feet as though dead. It's certainly the right approach. It's what we see in other encounters with the living God in the Old Testament. It was appropriate. Even men would fall before angels because if you're in the presence of God, you don't take that lightly. John is in the presence of the living one and he felt the power of Jesus' voice. You ever heard a raging waterfall? Been close to it? You cannot hear anything else. That's what he describes. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He felt the power of the voice. He saw his presence shine. He recognized who Jesus was in his glory and majesty. And Jesus does two things. He says, fear not. And he puts his hand on John. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I am here with you. And that right hand had to have been reassuring. You know how powerful sometimes a touch can be when you're hurting. I remember I took a dive. It wasn't a pretty dive either because I went head first into the sand. I had been hanging upside down in this jungle gym. I think it was our first Thanksgiving that Lydia and I had gone to uh, visit her family after we got married. And I was hanging upside down on a jungle gym like a kid, but I wasn't a kid. And her aunt, Lydia's aunt said, do that again. She wanted to take a picture. I, <laughs> it was not pretty because I lost my grip, went head first in the sand. And let me tell you, it did not feel good. But I will tell you, I remember in the midst of my pain, my agony, spent Thanksgiving partially in the ER and partially on uh, muscle relaxers. All right. That's how it went. But I remember Lydia's mom coming and placing her hand on me gently and praying for me. You know the power of that touch. How reassuring must it have been for John to receive that touch from Jesus right then, those nail-scarred hands. His comfort's not just in word, but in deed. And we follow him in that. And in the face of my many fears, the Lord comes near and speaks words of hope and calm over me. Who Jesus is still matters. What he has to say still matters. He does so by who he is. He's the first and the last. That's an echo of verse 8 where the Lord says, I am the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. It's the first and last of the Greek letters. It's basically to say from as far as you can think in any direction, I was there. And I am there. It's a statement of eternality, of sovereignty over time and circumstance. And now Jesus doesn't mince words. If there's any confusion about what he meant when he said that he was the first and the last, what does he say? I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the heartbeat of the resurrection that Jesus, our Lord, though he died, crucified on a Roman cross, buried in a tomb, but on the third day steps out of that tomb, he is alive forevermore. And so therefore, he is able to act on your behalf, on our behalf right now, 
What are your fears? Where do you need to hear Jesus say, fear not, I am alive forevermore. If Jesus has conquered the grave on our behalf after presenting his life as a sacrifice, what can't he do? Not only that, he says he has the keys of death and Hades. I don't know about you, but I, when I pull out my keychain, there's probably, you know, there's 13 keys and seven of them. I know what they go to and the other six, I have no clue. And we have keys in our junk drawer. We have, multi- well, you know how that goes. But what does a key signify? What do keys do? They signify ownership, the authority, the right to be there, to go where you want to go. Jesus has the authority to raise us from the greatest fear. Death and the power of death to separate us from God and those we love. The keys of death and Hades. Hades is not hell here. It's signifying our uh, after we die and our separation from our body. But Jesus owns that. He has access to that. So though we die and we await his return and a full resurrection, there is nowhere in heaven or earth that Jesus doesn't rule or reign. There's nowhere that he doesn't have a key to. So even that which we have no control of and often fear becomes a place of calm and trust in view of the resurrected Christ. We don't have to be resigned or cynical or in fear of an unknown future. Yaroslav Pelikan says, if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. What will it take to learn that? To live day by day, week by week with the living one, the Savior who is alive forevermore, which means he is with you, interceding for you, calming all that turns us over in our hearts and minds. It'll probably take a lifetime for us to learn that. I'll conclude with this, and you probably know this story, but I'll share it again. In much love, children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. And it wasn't long after World War II. Okay, so think of a time in much of the world that would have been in fear, including his home of England. He also had served on the front lines during World War I. He tried to serve in World War II and was rejected. But I think he understood real fear. And so in the Chronicles of Narnia, he has two girls, Susan and Lucy, getting ready to meet Aslan, the lion, who is a representation, allegory for Christ. And two talking animals, because this is how the story goes. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver prepare the children for that encounter. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Miss Beaver, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
he is the greater fear that rules over our lives, even while we wrestle with real fears in this world. What do you fear? The Lord's Day, not just on Easter, but each Sunday is an opportunity for us to look to Christ and have him settle our fears. To calm us because he is greater than anything that we could experience today or tomorrow or any day that is to come. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Easter is the inauguration of his overcoming the world in our eyes. He's the king, I tell you, and he will calm our fears. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we rejoice in today in this special opportunity that we have to consider the resurrection. But Lord, we rejoice that it's not something just for Easter, but something for each day. It has great meaning to us if we should look to Christ And look to him in faith and behold our king there. Yes, there will be storms. Yes, there will be fears. Yes, we will struggle at times. But Father, thank you that you're standing there still in all of your glory. And in Christ and by your spirit, we hear, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one who though died, Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Lord, we thank you that he has the keys to death and Hades. And Lord, all things in our lives we give to him. Glory and honor. And we thank you for today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have a unison confession of faith using the Apostles' Creed before we celebrate communion this morning as we do each week at North Hills. That communion, that is. Our, uh, this is the Apostles' Creed. If this is your creed, feel free to join in. If you just want to listen, that is fine as well. But this has been used for centuries in Christ church, and it binds us together with believers past and present all around the world in signifying this faith that we have in our triune God. So, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.